This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Listener discretion is advised. This episode contains graphic descriptions of childhood sexual abuse and medical afflictions that some people may find disturbing. We advise caution for listeners under 13. To protect their privacy, patient names have been changed throughout this episode. We've chosen pseudonyms to present this story. Christmas was over, and everyone was done ringing in the new year. In a quiet Midwestern town, the only sounds were the whistling of winds and an ambulance's siren. At the local hospital's intensive care unit, 1991 was off to a perilous start. Paramedics rushed in a young woman in her mid-twenties. She had a 106-degree fever, and her blood pressure was extremely low. The woman, who we'll call Elsa, was in septic shock. Microscopic bacteria had found their way into her bloodstream, and her body was waging a war against the invaders. When doctors cut off her blouse, they saw scars from previous surgeries covering Elsa's body. Elsa's high fever made her delirious. She couldn't remember simple details about her life. If her body temperature crawled just a little higher, to 108, she could suffer from permanent brain damage. From there, she'd have a matter of minutes before her organs shut down completely. The doctors worked furiously to save Elsa's life. During her brief moments of lucidity, she realized her time was running out. But Elsa had a secret. This wasn't the first time she'd intentionally done this to herself. When our bodies fail, we trust doctors to diagnose the problem. But medicine isn't always an exact science. Sometimes it's a guessing game with life or death stakes. This is Medical Mysteries, a ParCast original. I'm Molly. And I'm Richard. Every Tuesday, we'll look at the strangest real-life medical cases in history and the experts who raced against the clock to solve them. You can find episodes of Medical Mysteries and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Medical Mysteries for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Medical Mysteries in the search bar. This is our first episode on disease forgery, a condition where patients fake injuries or intentionally make themselves ill. 
This week, we'll explore a bizarre form of disease forgery known as Munchausen syndrome, recently renamed factitious disorder. We'll try to understand what motivates someone to fabricate an illness. Next week, we'll look at disorders like Munchausen syndrome by proxy, now called factitious disorder imposed on another, or FDIA, in which parents, caretakers, even friends impose their condition on a loved one. This is even more likely to be fatal. We'll explore the hopes for a cure or treatment. In 1991, 24-year-old Elsa kicked off the year with another visit to the emergency room. Only this time, Elsa was near death. Her blood pressure was perilously low, and her organs were starved for oxygen and nutrients. Doctors immediately started Elsa on powerful antibiotics and took blood samples to find out what had infected her body. The staff worked for hours until they managed to stabilize her blood pressure and bring down the fever. But it would be days, maybe months, before Elsa fully recovered. She had sepsis, a life-threatening complication that stems from infection. Typically, our immune system releases antibodies into our blood to fight off bacteria or viruses. The antibodies create fevers and inflame the sinuses to kill the invaders. Often, when you feel sick, your symptoms don't come from the disease itself, but from your body's efforts to fight off the germs. But sometimes your immune system overcompensates and your antibodies cause more damage than the pathogens do. Sepsis occurs when the immune response causes inflammation and breathing problems. If untreated, it can be fatal. This was the first time Elsa had gone into septic shock, a severe form of sepsis, but it wasn't her first medical emergency. She'd been treated for a variety of conditions in the past. Elsa's bizarre symptoms had begun when she was 18, a few months after she was in a serious car accident. She developed stomach ulcers, damage to the stomach lining that's caused by certain foods or infections, and later, bladder trauma, which can be caused by severe injury. But neither seemed to be related to the crash. Elsa returned to the hospital every few months with new and bizarre symptoms. Every time doctors got close to a diagnosis, she'd develop a new malady that threw all their theories into chaos. She was an anomaly, a patient plagued by one mysterious disease or accident after another. She underwent innumerable diagnostic tests and a variety of invasive surgeries, but her doctors couldn't put their fingers on the main cause. None of it made sense. By the time she reached her 20s, Elsa had been hospitalized about two dozen times. The trauma took an emotional toll. Elsa dropped out of college more than once because she was too sick to study. She didn't have adequate insurance, and her hospital bills left her $400,000 in debt. On top of that, she had no social life to speak of, and her parents didn't seem to be a part of her life at all. Her doctors felt for her, She'd suffered through so much and didn't even have a support network. Her internal care specialist, whom we'll refer to as Jane, became very close with Elsa. Jane worked tirelessly to connect the bizarre and seemingly unrelated symptoms to find a diagnosis. 
but she never managed to fit the pieces together. The 1991 trip to the hospital was the closest Elsa had ever come to death. But as she recovered over the next few days, she felt compelled to confess something to Jane. All of her illnesses had been self-inflicted. Elsa had boiled lead pipes and drank the water to get lead poisoning. She poured drain cleaner into capsules and swallowed them. She'd even injected her bladder with drain cleaner, causing irreparable damage that would forever leave her urinating into a bag. The list went on and on. Sometimes she'd only pretended to have stomach pains so she could be admitted to the hospital. Once there, she would secretly add blood to her urine to convince doctors she needed more care. She'd managed to fool her physicians time after time because Elsa was an expert liar. Pathological lying, sometimes called mythomania, causes people to fib compulsively. It's not like telling a little white lie to save face or impress a blind date. Pathological liars often can't control the scope of their fabrications. Sometimes the condition is tied to an emotional disorder, but that's not always the case. Sometimes their motivations are unclear. Elsa often researched specific medical conditions. Then she'd carefully describe her faked symptoms to make her lies more convincing. But that didn't explain why her doctors hadn't investigated her ailments more closely. Elsa's physicians had accepted her stories at face value. They'd done their best to find a medical rather than psychological explanation for her condition. They'd run endless tests, most of which had come back inconclusive. They'd made educated guesses and prescribed dozens of medications. And that was exactly what Elsa wanted. Every time they thought they'd found an answer, she'd create a new symptom to baffle them. And her compulsion was getting worse. Each visit, she needed to get even sicker to remain in their care. But this time, Elsa had gone too far. Already sick with influenza, she'd bought an insulin syringe from a pharmacy and injected herself with excrement. The combination of fecal bacteria and the virus brought her closer to death than she'd ever been. It left her in a hospital room, confessing the whole story to Jane. As she heard Elsa's story, Jane's first thought may have been that the young woman was suicidal. Perhaps the initial car accident had triggered some sort of depression. Elsa denied that. She didn't want to die. But she couldn't stop hurting herself. Until she opened up to Jane, Elsa had never told anyone about her struggles. She'd always worried that she would be mocked or met with contempt. Thankfully, Jane was ready and willing to help. But when word spread that Elsa had caused her own illnesses, other medical professionals refused to see her. Even a psychiatrist turned Elsa away. They couldn't help someone who compulsively lied about their condition. Elsa had hoped her brush with death and subsequent confession were her rock bottom. Surely it was the wake-up call that would push her to get help. But instead, for the next few years, Elsa continued to injure herself and lie about it. She couldn't stop herself. And because many of her local doctors wouldn't treat her, she had to go to new extremes to keep up the charade. 
She began driving to other states to seek treatment for her self-inflicted ailments. Elsa needed someone who understood what she was going through. Someone who'd seen her condition before and wouldn't judge her. But that person didn't seem to exist. Elsa feared she'd die before she ever found a cure. Coming up, Elsa discovers illuminating clues about her condition. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. In 1991, 24-year-old Elsa checked into the emergency room with a near-fatal case of sepsis. She'd been admitted dozens of times before with mysteriously unrelated symptoms. But this time, Elsa confessed that she'd injected herself with cleaning supplies, chemicals, even her own feces to stay sick. A short time later, Elsa discovered a book by psychiatrist Dr. Mark Feldman. He was a world expert on disease forgery, a behavior that involves faking or intentionally causing illness. And in Feldman's book, she found a name for what she was going through, Munchausen syndrome. The definition of Munchausen syndrome has evolved over time and has since been replaced by the term factitious disorder imposed on self, or FD. According to the Mayo Clinic, People with FD go to doctors with fake or self-inflicted symptoms. They sometimes insist on unnecessary tests and procedures to diagnose or treat their ailments. FD is often confused with another kind of disease forgery known as malingering. Patients who lie about their illnesses to achieve a specific goal. For example, someone with a drug addiction who breaks a toe to get a morphine prescription. Or a worker pretending to be sick to earn disability checks. People with FD may also lie, but for more complex reasons. Their behavior isn't necessarily self-serving. Sometimes it's the opposite. Elsa's actions led to physical and financial suffering, and she couldn't quite explain why she was lying in the first place, nor could she will herself to stop. FD had baffled patients, doctors, and researchers since it was first discussed in 1836. Scottish doctor Hector Gavin later published an essay titled On Feigned and Factitious Diseases. Many of his patients were soldiers he'd observed on active duty. It was here he discovered the first modern medical description of something resembling Munchausen syndrome. Gavin broke the disorder down into three distinct categories. The first included cases where symptoms were entirely made up, like a child faking a stomach ache to get out of school. The second category included cases where symptoms already existed but were greatly exaggerated, like waking up with a mild headache and pretending it's a migraine. Gavin's final category included diseases that were deliberately caused or made worse by the sufferer. Self-injury. 
Gavin was largely disinterested in people's motives for faking or exaggerating illnesses. He assumed that most of the soldiers he observed, regardless of category, were seeking a ticket home. But he allowed that some may try to excite compassion or interest or receive gratification in deceiving their officers, comrades, and surgeons. In other words, some patients sought attention or they liked to feel like they were getting away with something. But even these motives were, in Gavin's eyes, ultimately self-serving. Gavin only published this one paper on the subject, and over time, it faded from memory. The term factitious disorder still appeared sporadically after Gavin's essay, including an 1886 medical textbook called A Treatise on the Principles and Practice of Medicine. Though the word factitious wasn't used, the concept was discussed at length in a 1934 paper by the influential American psychiatrist, Dr. Carl Menninger. He rejected Gavin's theories that most people with the condition had selfish motivations. He observed several patients with the disorder who risked their own lives for no obvious gain. In Dr. Menninger's time, diagnostic tools like MRIs and CT scans hadn't been invented. If a problem didn't show up on an X-ray or a simple blood test, doctors would have had to cut into the patient to see what was wrong. Back then, all surgeries were extremely risky. Although penicillin had been discovered in 1928, it would be more than 14 years before the drug was readily available. Without antibiotics, even minor procedures often led to life-threatening infections, sometimes necessitating amputation. Menninger was surprised that some people would lie and manipulate their way into unnecessary and risky operations. So he called this behavior polysurgical addiction. Menninger couldn't come up with any rational explanation for why people would fake serious illnesses or seek these dangerous procedures. Like Gavin, he noticed some patients risked their life for attention or to achieve some personal goal. But that didn't explain every case or even most of them. Instead, Menninger believed that the behavior was pathological and stemmed from the repression of unconscious desires. In simple terms, repression refers to a process where a person forgets a memory or emotion that is too difficult or painful to deal with. They don't consciously choose to set the memory aside. It typically happens involuntarily. But they haven't really forgotten anything. The recollection still resides in the subconscious, influencing a person's desires or behavior. For example, let's imagine a child is bullied in school. Their bruises and black eyes eventually heal, but for years afterward, they can't bring themselves to think of the taunts and torments they endured. By the time the victim reaches adulthood, they don't remember the bullying at all. But they still have a hard time trusting people and may be afraid to stand up for themselves because of their formative experiences. At the time, famed psychologist Sigmund Freud believed that repressions such as this led to phobias, addictions, and in some cases, even paralysis. But Menninger had a solution. He believed that another one of Freud's ideas, psychoanalysis, could cure conditions that were caused by repressed memories. 
He talked to his patients and analyzed their dreams, believing this would reveal their unconscious desires. Menninger believed that once his subjects understood the root cause of their behavior, they could improve. Unfortunately, psychoanalysis was a new treatment, and Menninger may have done more harm than good. He and other therapists at the time used tools like hypnosis to try to uncover repressed memories. Today, scientists know that practices like this can actually create false traumatic memories and cause more psychological distress. In 1951, prominent British physician Richard Asher improved upon Menninger's research. Asher was intrigued by a number of patients whose symptoms didn't match the physical tests he'd performed. For example, one patient complained of ulcers, but the X-ray was clear and an exam showed no evidence of them. Asher also realized the patient had created a false but convincing medical history to fool the doctors. In addition to lying about their illnesses, Asher's patients told outlandish falsehoods about their lives, often with dramatic flair. One man spun a tale about being taken as a prisoner of war in 1942, but inquiries revealed that for much of this time, he was actually a patient at another hospital. Asher's patients reminded him of a book he'd read growing up. The Surprising Adventures of Baron von Munchausen. Munchausen was a baron who fought for the Russians against the Ottoman Turks in the mid-18th century. He had a reputation as a fabulist who'd regale his guests with detailed and likely fake stories of his own bravery. Asher thought that this kind of compulsive lying, or pseudologica fantastica, was similar to what he'd seen in his patients. So he called the behavior... Munchausen syndrome. To make the condition easier to identify, he explained that patients often presented stomach pains, bleeding disorders, or seizures, possibly because these symptoms were the easiest to simulate. But the motivation for their behavior remained a mystery. Asher wrote, the most remarkable feature of the syndrome is the apparent senselessness of it. Unlike the malingerer who may gain a definite end, these patients often seem to gain nothing except the discomfiture of unnecessary investigations or operations. In 1980, Munchausen syndrome, referred to as chronic factitial disorder, was added to the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, or DSM, a guidebook for American psychiatrists to classify and categorize mental health conditions. By the 2013 edition of the DSM, the term used to describe the behavior was factitious disorder imposed on self, or FD for short. Although Munchausen and FD are still used interchangeably, other types of factitious disorders have been researched over the years, like factitious Usher syndrome, where someone pretends they cannot see or hear, or factitious quadriplegia, in which a physically healthy person fakes paralysis. Dr. Mark Feldman, who specialized in disease forgery, knew that each of these conditions required serious intervention. Unlike a delusional patient who may lose touch with reality, FD patients were fully aware of what they were doing, and they could be very savvy at covering up their actions. 
That's part of why diagnosing FD is extremely difficult. It's more similar to a criminal investigation than to a medical examination. People with FD frequently feign or create symptoms that are difficult to diagnose. For example, someone may show up at a hospital and claim they had a seizure before arrival. Some seizures leave little to no trace, meaning the only evidence is the patient's verbal accounts. And with the rise of online medical databases like WebMD, potential fakers now have all the knowledge they need to deceive their friends, family, and doctors. Without a smoking gun, the suspicious physician faces a moral dilemma. Choosing to ignore a patient's symptoms could result in their decline or even death. And when there is evidence that a condition is faked, some patients respond with denial and aggression. Oftentimes, they'll even threaten to sue the doctor who accused them. Because factitious disorders involve deception, it's hard to get a solid estimate of how prevalent they are. A February 2007 study from the Psychosomatics Journal estimates that 1.3% of doctor visits are related to FD. That's thousands of unnecessary tests, surgeries, and prescriptions each year. That creates an immense burden for caretakers and patients alike. People with FD may go bankrupt seeking unnecessary treatments. If their symptoms are severe enough, they may lose jobs and miss out on social events. They have nothing to gain and everything to lose, but they still don't stop. The question becomes, why? Coming up, we'll dig into Elsa's childhood and try to get to the source of her extreme behavior. Now, back to the story. Around 1985, when Elsa began injuring herself, she had no idea just how far her obsession would go. Six years later, she thought confessing to her doctor would force her to finally stop. But it didn't help. When she finally found psychiatrist Dr. Feldman's book, she wrote to him, begging him to treat her. When he agreed, Elsa moved to Alabama, where Feldman practiced. She knew that if she wanted to get better, she had to push herself to be honest in her sessions. And that meant telling the truth about her past. Elsa didn't have a typical childhood. In the 1970s, when she was in elementary school, Elsa burned her family's house to the ground. She was involuntarily committed to a psychiatric facility, even though she insisted that she'd never meant to harm anyone. She did it to bring the family together. What that meant to Elsa isn't entirely clear, but we know that her parents fought relentlessly and she came from a dysfunctional home. According to a study in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology, children who grow up in unstable environments are at a higher risk for mental health conditions like depression, anxiety, and addiction. That's likely because human beings form attachments at a very early age, beginning with the bond between infant and mother. This relationship defines normal for the young child, Ideally, that parent is a source of love and stability. But if a mother is absent or indifferent, the child may conclude they aren't important enough to deserve love. This feeling of worthlessness may push them to act out or to look for attention elsewhere, especially later in life. 
Conversely, if a parent is volatile and unpredictable, that teaches the child to be careful, to walk lightly for fear of setting them off. He or she learns not to expect affection or to be suspicious when receiving it. And this skepticism can last a lifetime. During her stay at the psychiatric residence facility, Elsa suffered new abuses from the staff. She was tied up and beaten, punished and humiliated. Elsa was a prisoner locked away with sadistic guards. But one afternoon while working in the facility's kitchen, Elsa had an idea. She spilled a corrosive oven cleaner on her arms and cried for help. The orderlies rushed her to the infirmary where, at least for a little while, Elsa was safe and cared for. Elsa could escape from her abusers by injuring herself. So she kept at it. She drank juice mixed with cleaning chemicals. It burned her esophagus and caused massive stomach pain. But Elsa didn't care. In the infirmary, she felt safe. Nurses treated her with great kindness. And in her mind, Elsa began to equate sickness with survival. Eventually, her psychiatrist decided Elsa was fit to return home. They had no idea she was intentionally injuring herself and didn't see any other signs of emotional disorders. Over time, Elsa stopped self-harming. But when she was 18, Elsa was in a terrible car accident. During that stay in the hospital, something clicked. In her attentive caretakers, Elsa found something she'd craved for as long as she could remember, a family. Nurses sat at her bedside, eating lunch with her, talking, laughing, and telling her everything was going to be okay. In Elsa's words, I thought I had found heaven on earth. For the first time, Elsa experienced something most of us take for granted. Think back to a time in your childhood when you were sick, Maybe your parents took your temperature, told you to stay home from school, and showered you with attention for the day. But Elsa never had those experiences as a child. She never felt loved. According to Dr. Mark Feldman, many FD patients only experience those comforts in a hospital setting. In fact, some people with FD may look for father or mother figures in their doctors. According to psychiatrists like Dr. Judith Crowell, the template for a good relationship traces back to early childhood parent relationships. No matter how old or mature someone gets, they're always looking to recreate the bond they felt with their mother or father. They recreate these relationships with other people, siblings, friends, intimate partners, or medical caregivers. This idea is known as attachment theory. It began to develop in the 1950s by two psychologists, John Bowlby and Mary Ainsworth. Their research laid the groundwork for our understanding of why people like Elsa might engage in self-destructive behavior. In Elsa's case, she sought the attention of comforting authority figures when her parents failed to give her the unconditional love and support she craved. The sympathy was like a drug and Elsa would do whatever she could to get more. In fact, she later wrote, My goal in being sick was not to cause myself pain or create permanent injury. 
These outcomes were just the necessary inconveniences along the road to my real destination, receiving that little bit of caring from the hospital staff that would energize me and enable me to go on with my life. But when she was released from the hospital, Elsa became miserable. She battled shame and self-loathing. She hated that she was using precious medical resources that could otherwise go to patients in need. This is common for people with factitious disorder. Most are acutely aware of the pain their actions cause, but something inside just won't let them quit. In some cases, the guilt is powered by a masochistic need for punishment. People with Munchausen or FD typically suffer from low self-esteem. They might make themselves sick because they believe they deserve to suffer. Then, after recovery, they regret their actions, particularly because they may feel they took hospital resources away from genuinely sick people. Their self-esteem plummets. They seek to punish themselves, and the cycle continues. In her book, Secrets Unraveled, Overcoming Munchausen Syndrome, Munchausen's patient, Andrea Avigail, asked herself, what kind of person would act this way? Someone who deserves it. No one deserves the pain Andrea endured. Like Elsa, she also had a horrendous childhood and made similar associations between safety and sickness. As a child, Andrea found that cutting herself or getting sick could stop her father's sexual abuse. It also made her indifferent mother pay more attention to her. Thus, the only time she truly believed she was loved was when she was ill. Just as Elsa had, Andrea spent several years making herself sick, but her behavior stopped when she married and had three children. But after one of her children tragically died of brain cancer, Andrea fell back to her old ways. Her actions eventually strained her marriage to the point of collapse. It also took a toll on her surviving children, who couldn't count on her to be around. Andrea saw what was happening and hated the person she'd become. But she couldn't break the cycle of self-harm and hospitalization, almost as if it was a drug that she couldn't get enough of. Andrea wrote, I really do believe that factitious disorder is an addiction like any other. Like the addicts I worked with as a nurse, I used illness, my substance, to avoid emotions that tormented me. It was only when I hit rock bottom in intensive care that I was able to admit I had a problem. Dr. Mark Feldman wrote about the link between the disease of addiction and factitious disorder in his 2018 book, dying to be ill. He claimed many of his patients described their compulsion to lie or to hurt themselves with language similar to addicts. When someone takes a habit-forming substance like nicotine or cocaine, it triggers a rush of a brain chemical called dopamine. Dopamine is known as the feel-good neurotransmitter. It's released when we have sex, eat food, or experience feelings of pleasure or satisfaction. The user links the memory of taking drugs with that positive sensation. With each use, that connection gets stronger, even as the narcotic becomes less effective. When someone takes a drug regularly, their body becomes used to it. 
over time, higher doses are required to achieve the same results. This is called tolerance. But someone can develop tolerance even if their addiction isn't physical. A behavioral addiction, like a gambling or a sex addiction, generates a hit of dopamine every time someone rolls the dice or has intercourse. Or in the case of Elsa and Andrea, every time they injure themselves. But something else can happen when a person with an addiction engages in their vice. They feel like they're not in control of their body. It's like they're no longer in the driver's seat and someone else has taken the wheel. Both Elsa and Andrea describe that feeling. The sense of being separate from one's body is called disassociation. Like repression, disassociation is a defense mechanism against painful or traumatic thoughts that the psyche cannot process in a healthy way. It happens when the mind disconnects from bad feelings, memories, or even a person's identity. For example, some people in medical emergencies report out-of-body experiences in which they believe they leave the physical world behind and sometimes forget who they are. Elsa and Andrea were both victims of childhood trauma that they couldn't escape. So every time they injured themselves, they may have entered a dissociative state. The passenger was screaming to stop, but the driver wouldn't listen. And for someone on the outside looking in, it might seem like getting caught is a chance to take back that wheel. But many FD patients react aggressively when their stories are challenged. That's the final piece of the puzzle, the internal narrative. It's the stories that Elsa and Andrea told themselves about who they were. Dr. Feldman discovered that most people with factitious disorder fall into one of two categories, the victim or the hero. They seek sympathy for suffering through a disease or admiration for overcoming it. But in the end, factitious disorder is probably one of the world's worst coping strategies. Biology, childhood trauma, and a lack of parental love all contribute to the condition. And with the right recipe, it only takes one trip to the emergency room to trigger factitious disorder. Much like how Elsa's compulsions began in earnest after a car accident when she was 18 years old. Years later, 24-year-old Elsa didn't know if she could ever be cured. But one thing was clear. If she didn't get help for her disease, she might end up killing herself unintentionally. Worst of all, she had no one to help her treat herself. Her sessions with Dr. Feldman were a good first step, but the moment she left his office, she was on her own. She didn't have any friends or family members to intervene if she felt the compulsion to self-harm. The sad reality is, many patients with Munchausen syndrome hide their condition from their loved ones. Andrea Abigail's husband had no idea that his wife secretly starved and poisoned herself for years. Best case scenario, an unwitting friend or family member might enable the person with FD. They offer love and support during times of illness, feeding the patient's emotional needs. Other times, bystanders are pulled into the cycle of self-harm because in some extreme and even more mysterious situations, FD can be inflicted on other people. 
Thanks for listening to Medical Mysteries. For more information on disease forgery, amongst the many sources we used, we found Dr. Mark Feldman's book, Dying to be Ill, True Stories of Medical Deception, to be extremely helpful to our research. Next week, we'll turn our attention to a different factitious disorder, Munchausen by proxy. We'll see how technology has caused Munchausen syndrome to evolve and ask, can it be cured? You can find all episodes of Medical Mysteries and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Medical Mysteries for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Medical Mysteries on Spotify, just open the app and type Medical Mysteries in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Medical Mysteries was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Mike Ramos, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Medical Mysteries was written by Xander Bernstein, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire, and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rosner. Music